CEO of Society General India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a look at the markets in Australia. First of all, the SX200 has slipped. It's down about a quarter of a percent now. Not much movement in Japan. The Nikkei 225 is almost flat. Uh, the Cosby is moving up. It's up about 0.4% right now. Looks like the Hang Seng going to add about 30 or 40 points at the open this morning. And in the commodities markets, Brent crude oil, $43.19 a barrel. Gold is at $1,906 an ounce. And in the currency markets, all quiet this morning. Uh, the US dollar's at 105.4 Japanese yen. The euro, yeah, very much in focus with Brexit talks going on, $1.17. And the British pound is at $1.29. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Do have a great weekend. Back chat's coming up with Hugh Chiverton and Danny Gittings. The weather forecast, mainly fine, dry during the day. Maximum temperature is going to be about 30 degrees, mainly fine in the next few days, and it will be dry during the day, uh, with very large temperature differences between day and night. Temperature right now, 26 degrees, 72% relative humidity. It's 8.31. Here's Samantha Butler with the half-hour news. An aviation analyst says a travel bubble planned for Singapore and Hong Kong would be a significant step towards boosting their airline and tourism industries. Brendan Sobey, who's based in Singapore, says before the coronavirus there were some 20 flights a day between the two cities, with local passengers making up 70% of the traffic. He says both airports have since seen declines of more than 98% in passenger traffic. He called the plan a sensible start. Hong Kong and Singapore are, are like-minded, similar in terms of air traffic profile, and of course similar in that both don't have a domestic market. So basically this gives the first option for both Hong Kong and Singapore residents because there is no domestic market for either. So it's a huge thing. There'll be a huge pent-up demand. That's why it could lead to significant number of flights, even potentially beyond what we had between Singapore and Hong Kong before COVID, if it's allowed, if the, that kind of volume is allowed. Donald Trump and Joe Biden are starting campaign events, taking questions from the public in Miami and Philadelphia, respectively. The simultaneous town halls take the place of the second presidential debate. Here's the BBC's Ben Wright makes it a rather difficult challenge for channel hopping undecided voters to get through the evening because there aren't going to be many of these opportunities left. This of course was meant to be the night of the second presidential debate that fell to bits when President Trump decided he wouldn't take part in a virtual one. And then after tonight's sort of rival dueling town hall television spectacles there will be or there's meant to be a third and final presidential debate on October the 22nd. So I think the, the problem is is that I think there are people who feel this, this is just simply not a very productive scheduling to have on American television tonight. European Union leaders have expressed concern at the lack of progress in negotiations with Britain on a post-Brexit trade and future partnership agreement. It comes with just two and a half months remaining until the current transition period ends. Following talks at an EU summit, they've called on Britain to shift its position on sticking points on fisheries and measures to ensure fair competition. The EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, said he wanted a deal but not at any price. Our team and I will continue intensive discussions over the coming weeks. Our positions have been crystal clear from the day one of this negotiation. If you want access to our market of 450 million people, there must be a level playing field. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiverton, your co-host today, Danny Gittings. Danny, good morning to you. Good morning. Today, telling the Hong Kong story. The permanent exhibition of the Hong Kong Museum of History in Chim Sao Choi is going to be closed for an extensive revamp from Monday after 20 years of exhibition. So, what should be in the new version of our city's history? How will it deal with the colonial past and with one country, two systems? How would you deal, for example, with June the 4th, Occupy or SARS? History and local heritage have become politically, particularly politicised in the past few years. Should the display reflect or avoid the controversies? Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, backchat at rthk.hk. Or you can give us a call, and our number is 233 uh, Joining us now, we have uh, Gordon Poon, a historian and uh, writer, Professor John Carroll from the Department of History and Associate Dean of the Faculty of Arts at the University of Hong Kong, and uh, Reynold Jung, who's uh, a former student of uh, Professor Carroll uh, and uh, an expert on the history of uh, museums in Hong Kong. Others will be joining us in the course of... Oh, no, we have got... Yeah. There we are. Yeah, just at the side there. <laughs> OK. Uh, Ian Alden-Russell, I think that is, Associate Professor in Cultural Studies and Director of the MA Programme in Cultural Management at the Chinese University. And we hope uh, Hayda Kickerboy... Is that Hayda Kickerboy? OK. Uh, Co-founder of uh, Walk in Hong Kong and uh, a history writer. So a full house today. Uh, John Carroll, maybe we'll start with you. Good morning. Good morning. Professor Thanks Carroll. for having Thank me back. Indeed for, for joining us. Yeah, good to talk to you. Um, so, telling the story of, uh, of Hong Kong history, um, this, this, is, this is going to be controversial, isn't it? There's going to be a lot of attention paid to what is and what is not in that exhibition, I guess. Well, there, there will be, Hugh. Um, mm. But I think the first thing to keep in mind is that the history of the Hong Kong Museum of History was controversial from the start. Um, when it was first envisaged back in the mid, uh, early mid-1990s, there were all kinds of debates about what should go in, how much attention to be, should be paid to events such as the Opium War, for example, how much uh, space should be dedicated to uh, Dr. Sun Yat-sen. So I don't think we should assume that... Uh, that it will ever be uh, free of controversy. Hmm. What, what do you think of the exhibition as it stands at the moment? I think the exhibition has served Hong Kong society quite well for 20 years. Um, it's, it's time to move on. If you've been there recently, you know that the, uh, the ending exhibition is the film, uh, which has the slogan, uh, Tomorrow will be even better, uh, Jiang Zemin's slogan, and uh, it's time to move beyond. It's, it's a bit uh, trapped in a time warp right now because everything stops in 1997. What, was it trapped slightly in a time warp from the beginning? Um, it, does it kind of avoid lots of issues? Uh, the, I mean, half of it is dedicated to the natural setting and to archaeology and to sort of folk culture, uh, which is kind of, I, I suspect, we're not what people go to a museum of history for. I think it depends on who, who, who's, who you're talking about. Uh, the museum did do a survey back in 2015 and 2016, and the results were, were released. And uh, one of the, the overwhelming responses was that uh, the natural history part needed to be moved into a museum of its own. The idea being that Hong Kong museums in general need their own identity, and why not have a museum of natural history? Mm. Right, that seems to make sense. Okay, if anyone's got a phone, if they could switch it off, please, that would be good. Um, also, um, once we get going, please feel free just to, to talk directly to each other, okay? You don't have to wait for, for, for questions and answers and, and so on. Um, Gordon Poon, uh, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Okay, what do you think, what would you like to see featured in the exhibition that isn't there at the moment? I think the first thing I'd like to see is some 
truth and facts on the ground, because the uh, existing uh, existing uh, exhibition that uh, actually was started before the handover had a lot of distorted or twisted facts, right? And also, well, well, the, what kind of distorted or twisted facts? Can you give us some t- examples? Oh yes, examples in broad terms. Yes, exactly. Um, I'm going to do that right now. Um, they say that Hong Kong's history started like thousands of years ago. Well, I think that is not a true representation. Hong Kong only started in 1841. I've done a lot of research regarding where the name came from. Uh, the island did not have a name on its own. The Brits called this the Hong Kong Island, and they took this Hong Kong Island. And also the other thing is they said there were like four ethnic groups of Chinese that sort of uh, created the people of Hong Kong or maybe the uh, major components of the Hong Kong, Hong Kongers, if you will. But I think that is also... So you're saying it really was a barren rock because that Well, was, absolutely, barren. It, it was. I mean, we had a census. They did a census when uh, Charles Elliot was here uh, in the middle of 1841. Because... But, and then yeah. on that census, we had inhabitants in Taitam, in Chekchu, in various places. And we're talking about a few thousands. And those were not actually the, uh, the, the beginners of the Hong Kong people, because within 20 years, we had uh, 80,000 people, and they all came from China. So Hong Kong's story doesn't really begin until the colonial... Until 1841, mm. until the 25th and the 26th of January, there is a when pre- they landed on, uh, on the uh, procession corner. There think, was no Hong Kong before that. Do you think there's a political dimension to this? That the, cause you, yeah, the, you, because they always come back to, oh, yeah, we were always here. Yeah. There was 100 years of humiliation. Uh, there was the Opium War. There was these uh, unequal treaties. And you go on and on. But this is not the way I see it because, you know, we had a lot of uh, Chinese inhabitants on the southern coast of China. You go to Zhuhai. You go to other places in Guangdong, it's the same thing. So you dig into it and you find a lot of uh, things from even from the Han Dynasty. What does it tell you? It tells you nothing about so Hong Kong. This is quite troubling. If you're saying even in the 1990s when this was set up, there was already a political dimension to how Absolutely. They, so what, what we, we can expect it to be 10 times more yeah, now, right? In they the want to create a narrative to tell you the Brits were nothing to Hong Kong, or Hong Kong was created by the Chinese like in the Han Dynasty, and now the motherland is taking it back. So what kind of narrative do you expect, or perhaps do you, do you fear from the new exhibition? It would be even getting worse, I think. Yeah. I can see it coming. Okay, Reynold Jung, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for, for joining us. Do you, do you agree with that? Do you think that's... So, actually, the current Hong Kong story is the second-generation Hong Kong story. The first-generation Hong Kong story started in 1991 at the Kowloon Park History Museum. So, uh, actually, uh, back in 1991, the whole exhibition is uh, planned by the Urban Council and also the colonial government. Their focus is just to narrate the so-called miraculous evolution of Hong Kong, from a small fishing village to a modern metropolis. But at the handover, some pro-Beijing urban council politicians tried to argue against that. And as a result, in 2001, when the new Hong Kong story is opened in the Chatham Road uh, 
History Museum. They tried to extend the Opium War section to talk about the century of humiliation. And they also tried to add in Sun Yat-sen and also other revolutionaries in the Hong Kong story. Okay, but Sun Yat-sen surely is an important part of the Hong Kong story. I mean, he has his own museum, doesn't he? Yes. So there's no, there's no, nothing wrong in, in those kind of changes? I, I think it shows that how the SAR government tried to, uh, try to emphasise the linkage between Hong Kong and also mainland China. And, of course, the Sun Yat-sen Museum is planned after the handover. So what would you expect on this latest revamp, then? If you're saying, back, again, you're saying uh, very similar to what Gordon Poon was saying, even back in 2001 and so on, they're, they're emphasising a, a sort of a political undertone. Uh, when when the, the exhibition is revamped this time, how, how would you expect it to change? So I, ex- the message? so I expect them to really... To really um, to add more Chinese elements into the exhibition. I guess they will also maybe talk about uh, the reform and opening up of China uh, and their linkage with Hong Kong. I think this is one of the uh, potential emphasis of the new Hong Kong story. I mean, now, of course, we have a localist, which you didn't have previously. We have a localist movement in Hong Kong, and you've even had, although it's bad now, an independence movement. So um, does that feed into how they will, they'll think about the Hong Kong story? You don't want to do anything that encourages feelings of localism, right? Yes, I guess the new Hong Kong story will definitely avoid any controversial issues. I guess they will concentrate on like uh, social and cultural events. But of course, I think they will mention the Occupy movement. And I think they will frame it as some like uh, disturbances or just uh, some illegal protests. I think this is exactly the point. They would not shy away from giving us a lot of coverage about the negative side of the activism in Hong Kong. But what they would do is to use a narrative to say stability is good, right? All this disturbance, all these people trying to subverse, I mean, trying to, uh, uh, I mean, they would, they would try to glorify also the, uh, the national security and all these issues, but they would give you a lot of coverage. What I'm, I, I, I'm worried about is that we are losing the truth and the facts on the ground. I think as a historian, you would never put, I would say, the carriage in front of their hearts and say, okay, this is my narrative, this is my belief. So whatever you find, you have to, you have to forge everything into this, this sort of a, 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 a framework, and every, anything that doesn't go with the framework will throw it away. So you go to this museum, you see the dinosaurs, you see the haka. I mean, what does that do to us? What's the significance of that? Because here I have like a couple of books. These people like uh, Frederick Stewart, who created the education in Hong Kong, not mentioned there. This guy, Sir Kai Ho Kai, he was the tutor, uh, teacher, an intimate friend of Sun Yat-sen, he actually indoctrinated Sun Yat-sen with those revolutionary ideas. And he wrote a lot of stuff about Hong Kong. He went to the UK as a boarding school student at the age of 13. He studied and read law in the Lincoln's Inn. He was also a surgeon and a doctor. I mean, this guy married to an MP's daughter. These stories we don't tell. 
the, the, there are the stories like that. But uh, Hayley Kickboy, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, the, there's also, uh, I think now, a, an emotional attachment and an emotional understanding of history, which there wasn't in, in the past in, in, in Hong Kong. You, you look around town and you see just for sale the, the little icons, the Hong Kong icons and mouse mats based on tiles and the model, you know, street vendors and things you can buy. There's, there's a whole industry now, and there's a whole sense of a Hong Kong identity, which wasn't there even 10 years ago, uh, let alone 20 years ago. So I think there's a whole kind of approach, a different understanding and different implications to history, perhaps, in, in the past in Hong Kong now. Do you agree? Uh, certainly. Um, you always need um, an entry point when you approach something new, when you learn about something new. Um, a history museum shouldn't just be uh, a straightforward, linear, like dry telling of facts by an invisible voice. And that's what we, we have right now with the Hong Kong Story Exhibition. Um, you go there, you have lots of panels, you've got some great installations, recreations of old Hong Kong streetscapes, uh, rural scenes, folk festivities, so on and so forth. Um, some of them are really visually attractive, but when you come out of the museum, you, there's a sense that you, you don't really get any insights about so what, what's Hong Kong. Um, some would argue that there's uh, a narrative uh, that emphasizes uh, social events or like day-to-day -day life of um, ordinary folks, like in post-war Hong Kong. Uh, but at the same time, you can argue there's no narrative in the current Hong Kong story exhibition. Uh, because it, it sidesteps certain um, big events, uh, watershed events in, in Hong Kong history. So, like what Professor Carroll said at the beginning of the show, uh, I don't think, uh, I think it would be foolish to, to expect that uh, the Hong Kong History Museum will ever be free of uh, controversy. It's in the nature of the study of mm. history, right? Mm. What I'm more interested in, it's uh, two things. Uh, that I hope uh, would um, would go in the new Hong Kong Story Exhibition. First, uh, there should be like a mix of voices in the telling of, of the Hong Kong story. Uh, right now, you go you go in, you read the panels. I don't know who is telling it. There's no stories from ordinary people, and in history, there's always all sorts of really crazy, interesting characters. <laughs> uh, if if I'm a, a novice, a, a new um, cultural new person to Hong Kong history, uh, I need a hook. I need uh, some crazy characters to draw my attention. I want to know that eccentricities, their foibles, uh, their secret scandals, juicy details in, in their private lives, and also what, what they've done for Hong Kong, right? Um, there, there's no such characters in the, in the current Hong Kong story exhibition, and, and that, that's a real missed opportunity, I think. So you, it sounds like you think that it should be revamped. You're just uh, maybe a bit worried about the, what the result will be. Well, there's a, there's a process. It, it's, not, it's not done yet, but uh, I think purpose of us uh, here today for the discussion is we, we, we draw upon a wide, wide mix of views, and certainly there, there, should, there should be a mix of voices represented in the new Hong Kong Story Exhibition, and uh, it would be useful to have... Well, valuable to, to have characters from Hong Kong history that are not currently um, represented in, in the Hong Kong Story Exhibition. For instance, uh, in the 19th century in Hong Kong, uh, there's a big group of Salvations. Uh, they, 
they were fundamental to, to the development of, of early Hong Kong. They, they were not only policemen or soldiers, they, they were in all sorts of trades. Uh, there have always been uh, people from different parts of the world in Hong Kong. Hong Kong was a trading port. Uh, these voices should well, be I might like to interrupt in here. I think about the South Asians, we should not call them that because this is a kind of misleading because those were the immigrants from British India. And I think, for, but by the same token, if we want to emphasize the Chinese-ness of Hong Kong, we should not overlook the Britishness of Hong Kong. In the Victorian days, we had a huge empire. I mean, the sun never set. I mean, we're not talking about Rue Britannia and all this kind of jingoist thing. I'm talking about the reality, because the people move freely among all these different colonies. So we have the Sassoons, we have the Belilios, and we had the uh, Chatter, Modi. What is in common with these people? Kaduri. They all came from British India. They may be Armenian Christians, they may be Farsis, they may be Jews, but they are very close-knit circle because they used to live in Bombay, Calcutta, whatever, you go on, and then come to Hong Kong and build Hong Kong and make Hong Kong one of the best cities within the empire, right? This is really cosmopolitan and multicultural. So this part of Hong Kong was what made Hong Kong tick. We are an international world city. I am not glorifying the British. I'm saying this is a fact. Because if you go back to Victorian days, the, the best thing is to be inside the empire. Because you get the access of all this multicultural and you have the best sort of civilization and, and I would say the best way of life, the best standard of life. So, so I, I think this was totally British. And the Chinese were very important, but they were all immigrants, as I said. Now, going back to this, uh, I won't say this was not a narrative. The narrative was clear, even before the handover. This thing was Chinese, and we had civilization, we have inhabitants, we had a fishing village when people lived here. But think about it. I mean, Charles Eliot, uh, Pottinger, these people don't care about Chekchu. They were building the city of Victoria from a barren rock. And this was 100% British. That was the way it was. Okay. Uh, also with us today is Ian Norton Russell, uh, Associate Professor of Cultural Studies Director of the MA Programme in Cultural Management at the Chinese University, interested in curation, museum studies. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. Okay. Well, what's your perspective uh, on this? And, uh, you know, what's the kind of contemporary thought about how you would approach all these controversies and how you would tell what would be the role of a museum of history? I think I'd start by picking up with this idea of multiple voices um, being present in the museum. Uh, museum are representational platforms, right? They're places where a, a, a country, a people, a community express who they, who they are. And as we know, there's multiple voices that are part of a conversation of figuring out what a place might be. So I, I would really encourage us to embrace uh, the dissonance and the difficulty. I think that... that um, Disagreement actually has a lot of vitality in it, and and I would argue um, that within a you know within democratic principles, disagreement is fundamental to a vital um, civic process. So museums should be contested, and we should embrace that contestation and find ways to welcome people into it. Specifically, I think uh, to your question about what what might be good to see, I think for me the most simple thing I'd like to see is have people be 
openly presented with the question of what is Hong Kong. I mean, I, I defer to all our, our wonderful guests in terms of the, the knowledge and expertise that they bring. Um, Hong Kong can be many things. It's a place, but it's also a series of ideas. And I would want visitors to be prompted with that question and maybe even leave still with that question. And I think the concern I might bring is the dangers start to emerge when we try to fix the narrative too much. Um, and when we have you know two or three or whatever number of fixed narratives competing with each other, that's where we start to have much more significant structural problems in museums. So I would say thinking about um, the public engagement initiatives, the educational programs that would be on offer, um, so that we might be able to bring in as broad a community to feel like they can be um, members of the museum-going community in Hong Kong. So you're saying that, I mean, there's, 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 no, there's nothing unusual in this, these kind of contested in, in, in Hong Kong. You can see many parallels elsewhere in the world over, over museums. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think if anyone were to search on the web for museums today, you would come across any number of, co of controversies. I, you know, I mean, I guess to, to, to link in and maybe ratchet up one element of our conversation, you know, we've brought up the issue of the colonial past something that is certainly of concern within museums around the world, and if I'm speaking to some of our students in terms of issues they're interested in discussing, the theme of decolonization. You know, it's a, it's a you know, interesting, perhaps tricky or difficult term, um, but you know, I, and the way I might represent that is we could look at the post-colonial process, post-handover in Hong Kong, um, but I think we also have to recognize that efforts in decolonization do support certain fixed narratives of what Hong Kong is, and that brings me back to this issue of Hong Hong Kong being Chinese. There is an effort to decolonize the museum spaces here, and that's not necessarily me advocating for colonialism per se, but I think I agree with our colleagues here about the, the necessary for that to be visible and to be understood, because those narratives are an integral part to how, what generations have experienced in this place, and I think that is certainly a part of the uh, place identity, and I think many people do uh, identify with it, whether or not they disagree or want to change it. And how do museums elsewhere cope with these kind of conflicts? I mean, uh, especially when they're, gov they're government-owned. Do you, do you see museums being inclusive about alternative viewpoints, or you, you say they stick to basically what you might call the official line? Mm, well, I, I would have to say, globally, the, there's, a, there's a range of responses to it. Um, this might be a, a tangent. I don't want to diverge this away from Hong Kong, but there's been recent conversations in ICOM, the International Council of Museums, um, advocating for, we might say, a more uh, progressive, a more social justice-oriented definition of a museum. And that the ICOM is currently in, in a most min, lightly, I'll say, crisis about negotiating that new definition because there are parts of the world where museums that are doing good work serving their communities, if they were to embrace the ICOM definition, it would put them in direct conflict with their standing government, and it might prevent them from being able to do that good work. So I guess what I really come, come around to say is that I think museums around the world generally do understand that they represent their place. Uh, I think many museum professionals around the world are leaning in to these conversations um, and you know, to, to both good and, good and bad ends. And that what I would hope, at least in my time working and, and learning from students here in Hong Kong, is that if this process that has been initiated over the last five plus years is earnest and open, that I, I want to believe that that will express itself at least in terms of how the community is welcomed in to ask questions. But that remains to be seen. There is a suggestion that, that, that they're going to have more uh, special exhibitions, that one floor will be dedicated to special exhibitions and they'll rotate and they'll change. So maybe that will that will bring about that that uh, kind of diversity um that you that you've mentioned and the um the, you know not having the the fixed views um 
you know, uh, John Carroll, um, it, it, do you think, is there a lot of pressure? Is there a lot of, uh, do you think that this is something that is very politicised? Do you think that Beijing is paying attention to this? I see Xi Jinping has been making statements about archaeology and, and so on and understanding a cultural background. Does that mean that this is very highly charged? I'm not sure if any PRC leaders have visited the Museum of History when they've been here, um, but I do think that what makes the Hong Kong situation rather different from museums around the world is Hong Kong's peculiar post-colonial status, right? One country, two systems. The museum also has to serve three very different groups of visitors, mainland visitors, Hong Kong visitors, and of course overseas tourists, all of whom expect something different. And in fact, I think the problem is reflected in the name of the museum. Um, it's called the, the, the Hong Kong Museum of History. Many people, especially overseas and mainland visitors, go and say, wait a minute, we thought this was a museum of history, but instead it's a museum of Hong Kong history. And I think one of the first steps the, the museum could take is to, to change the name to the mm. Museum of Hong Kong History, which in itself, though, would be rather, rather political and, and complicated. Sorry, you lost me there. The change it to what? Change it to the Hong Kong Museum of History? No, to the Museum of Hong Kong History. So what's the difference? Well, the Hong Kong Museum of History suggests that uh, it's, it's, for example, um, a museum anywhere in the world which is dedicated okay. to the study of history. But in, in Hong Kong, what you actually have is simply, not simply, but it's a museum dedicated to the history of Hong Kong. Okay. So why not step ahead up and, and, and call it that? All right. well, I think it's a, a very... Hang on, Gordon, because we've, we've got a break for the news if we go okay. uh, at nine o'clock. We continue the conversation, the second part of the programme. Uh, and we'd like to hear from you uh, as well. Uh, give us a call, 233-88266. Drop us a line, backchat at rthk.hk is the email address. Or comment on uh, Facebook, as TC has done. I'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, after the news and after the weather, it's going to be mainly fine, dry today, maximum temperature about 30 degrees. That look mainly fine in the next few days uh, and slightly cooler next week. 26 degrees now, relative humidity is at 71%. Back in three minutes. On October the 22nd. So I think the, the problem is, is that I think there are people who feel this, this is just simply not a very productive scheduling to have on American television tonight. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back, back chat this Friday morning. We're talking about uh, Hong Kong history. Danny Gittings, your co-host. I'm Hugh Chiverton. Uh, joining us for the uh, discussion, we have with us now Gordon Poon, historian and writer. Reynold Jung, uh, now at Oxford for his uh, PhD, a, a historian, expert on the history of museums uh, in Hong Kong. Ian Alden Russell, Associate Professor in Cultural Studies, Director of the MA Programme in Cultural Management at the Chinese University. Heather Kickboy, co-founder of Walk in Hong Kong and a history writer. And Professor John Carroll from the Department of History and Associate Dean of the Faculty of Arts at the University of Hong Kong. And of course we want to hear from you, backchat at rthk.hk. Perhaps particularly if you're a woman. We've got a very male panel. Let's <laughs> say, so, completely by chance, not blaming anyone there. At least um, they're not all white. And not all white. <laughs> There's some, uh, some different voices uh, represented. Anyway, please join in by uh, emailing backchat at rthk.hk with, uh, with your thoughts. Uh, TC, uh, who I think is in Canada, says, I've been to the museum when vacationing in Hong Kong. For the most part, its exhibits are informative, covering the history of Hong Kong, including before the time Hong Kong as we know exists. Most importantly, it offers a very balanced historical account of Hong Kong, meaning it doesn't offer judgment about the morality of how Hong Kong became a British colony, nor Japanese occupation of Hong Kong during World War II. That being said, avoiding politicisation of historiography is almost impossible. We all choose sides with the words we use, says uh, TC. 
Uh, Hugh says, and I think this is referring to not Gordon. Gordon. Yeah, this is not me. Uh, says, I think this is referring to Gordon Poon. Uh, great to see back chat with a guest who calls it like it is. Revisionism is a tool of repression. Yes. And uh, David has a thumbs up and says, this is a great history lesson today. Uh, Reynold Jung, um, all, all, I think with the exception of Pelfast of the Maritime Museum, all, all museums in Hong Kong are run by the government, right? Uh, actually, the medical museum is run okay, by so the government. Okay, so there, there are a couple of exceptions, but yeah. the vast majority of museums are run by the government. Is that a problem or is that necessarily the best model? Actually, it's always the problem because... Uh, back in the 1960s, when the first major public museum, the City Hall Museum and Art Gallery was established, is run by the Urban Council. And up way to uh, the handover period, there is like no private museum, except for the CUHK Museum and also the HKU Museum. Because when the museums are run by the government, you all, it's a, even say that the display is entirely fair and unbiased, but you're always going to get suspicions, aren't you? Right? I mean, yes. And actually, I think museums are rarely neutral because it's shaped by the curators and also those who finance them. But it also proves that museums can uh, change, always change because there will be new curators, new donors, etc. Has there ever been any discussion in Hong Kong about <coughs> trying to move museums away from sort of direct government control? Uh, I think there isn't like a real campaign on that. But yes, some, some people do suggest that. And actually back in the colonial period, the Urban Council is responsible for the management of museums. And the Urban Council was partly elected. So unlike the LCSD now, it's like a civil service. Yeah, of course, mm. it, was not, it wasn't actually a government department running the museums then. It was sort of... The landscape, of course, the landscape is changing, isn't it? And you're just about to get two massive museums, yes. uh, which will not be under LCSD control. You've got, the, you've got M+, Plus, which, which has a large... Which kind of looks at it has an Asia-wide focus, doesn't it? Yes. So that'll be an interesting uh, different context, which you don't often hear about very much in in Hong Kong. Uh, and you've got the Palace Museum as well, which is nominally, I think, coming under the West Kowloon Cultural District yes. Authority. So there the will be uh, other things. You've also got, of course, you've got the um, Heritage Museum now in, in, in Taiwan, which is a huge space, a little bit bleak sometimes. <laughs> but that, I mean, so I, I guess the... Uh, and that would, I suppose, take up the kind of the folk culture element. Yes, I think so. In the, in the moment? Yes, actually the orientation or the division of labour between the History Museum and the Heritage Museum is always unclear. Yeah. Because they've got Bruce Lee, for example. Yes. They? They've, yes. they've <laughs> cornered Bruce Lee for the Heritage Museum. Do you think he should be in the Museum of History? As well? I think he should be in the Museum of History. And, of course, the folk cultures should be in the Heritage Museum. Actually, the folk cultures section... Uh, it's called the ethnography section if in uh, other places. So it's not really about folk cultures, it's more like ethnography. Wouldn't it be more healthy if, run, if they were run by different organisations and you had some sort of competition between them? Oh, I think so, yes. I think competition will definitely help improve the situation. And of course, I think uh, the government should rely more on like, uh, a, should establish like a, a Museum committee with power. So now they have a consultative consultative committee, but it doesn't really have real power in changing the curation and all the collections. And I think they should step stepped up like uh, 
museum select committee to really deal with that. You're suggesting more direct government control there? No, uh, I mean, I, I, you need to invite more experts or like uh, non-government people into the committee. Mm. I, th I think there is, there is a, at the moment, there is an advisory committee, isn't there, for the renovation, which is academics? I mean, yes, purely yes. academics? But the, the, the committee, the, the power that the committee holds is completely different mm. during, uh, compared with the colonial period. Because in, when the Urban Council is uh, managing the museums, they have a museum select committee, and the museum select committee have real power. They can approve all the collections. They can also approve uh, how the museum should rate something or, or curate something. And the committee is comprised of uh, elected members, so they are like uh, legislative council members. So I think this makes a difference. It reflects how the public view. Good. John Carroll, what, what about? I mean, what about this question about whether it's best? Do you think Hong Kong is best understood and should be best presented, Cause, especially because there are young people? I mean, you didn't specify that as an audience, but there will be, you know, young people. So in a way, you've got to kind of simplify things as well. And with that in mind, do you think it's Hong Kong is best understood, you know, in in a context in the context of southern China, that it's the city in southern China that most of our trade and our culture and so on comes from uh, comes from southern China and that you know historically uh, if you look at the big picture there was a colonial period but you just in terms of years and so on you know most of our time ha has been a, a, as part of uh, as linked to the mainland in, in, in every single way um, do you think that's the best way to understand Hong Kong or should we be looking at kind of at the differences at the two systems well definitely differences um, mm -hmm. there's no doubt that that uh, South China is one strand of Hong Kong history. Um, although, as Gordon has pointed out, uh, certainly the, the British aspect is, is very important. I think what's, what's worth noting is that the narrative of the museum today is in very much a natural one. And that's partly why the natural environment section, which most people would happy to be see, uh, happy to be see moved off, uh, is, is so big. And then Hong Kong's process of, of colonization is almost a natural one. Um, there's very little uh, assignment of blame. The opium war section is all jumbled up. You can't really tell, you can't really blame either side very well. Even the film that is, is played, although that's changed over, over time, played in three different languages, Mandarin, Cantonese, and English. Each one has slight variances. But even there, it's seen as a reasonably natural collision between two, two empires. Oh, okay, right. And then when you get to the end, um, the decolonization of Hong Kong is also seen as a rather natural process, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole point of a museum in some ways, because if you, if you train visitors to be critical of the colonial government, then they can just as easily be critical of the current government. So the whole, the whole kind of history that's, that's, that's sold here is, uh, is a very soft one, right? It's sort of the one we get from, uh, from the banks in Hong Kong, from the government. Hong Kong people can overcome any adversity. We've even overcome typhoons. We've overcome financial depressions, and of course, we can overcome um, all of these historical changes. How, how far do you think the exhibition should go in the, in the, the new exhibition? I mean, right. should, it go, should it cover the events of last year? Right. As or is I that too recent? Right. Well, as I understand from friends and colleagues on the committee, uh, 2019 will be covered. 2019 will it be will. covered? Oh, okay. The question is how, and uh, I think that's uh, completely open to speculation. I, I, I cannot imagine 
uh, a least enviable job than having to curate that that exhibit. So they 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 already have a fairly good from from what you understand they already have a fairly good idea about even though it I mean the process of, of replacing is just starting right I mean right, it's right. going to take a couple of years they, but right. they already have a fairly good idea about what they're going to put in its place. Right. Well, they've been talking for several years. Uh, I mean, I, I think that one of the the, the, the sentiments in Hong Kong now, or the fears, is that a lot of these changes were prompted by, uh, by the national security law and, and the, the protests from last year. But I do think we have to keep in mind that the revamping has been in planning for, for quite a while. And the mm. national security law will surely be part of the new exhibition. Uh, that's now a significant event in Hong Kong history. That will surely be a part of the new exhibition. Yes, well, I think as one of, the, one of our guests has already explained today, this will no doubt be presented in a, in a very, very favorable, favorable light. And um, in terms of uh, the sort of reorientation, you, you mentioned the mainland visitors and Putinhua soundtrack. I mean, of course, that's something that hardly existed at the last time the, uh, this, when this exhibition was set up. Um, did, does that look like that will be a significant component of the new, the new Hong Kong story? I'm not really sure, but I, I cannot imagine that it would not be. Okay, and perhaps to any of our guests, I mean, if I don't know what the percentage of uh, visitors, uh, mainland visitors, was in the, uh, the museum over the past year, or well, not past year, but going back a couple of years, but it must now be quite significant. Is, is it reasonable to reorientate the museum accordingly? Not without making a lot of Hong Kong people unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess in- that there are always uh, overlooked aspects in um, Hong Kong history. Um, We we were talking earlier if um, Hong Hong Kong uh, history should um, the the the, the story that um, that's going to be told should should it focus on how Hong Kong fits into southern China? I I think someone raised that question earlier. Uh, I I would say that um, narrative or um, the the scope should be expanded. For instance, um, not until not so long ago, Hong Kong. Um, was a key part of um, Southeast Asia. People between different Southeast Asian countries uh, travelled back and forth. It's, it's so normal to, to up sticks uh, from Hong Kong and move to Manila or, or Singapore. If you look at Wong Kar Wai's movies, mm. all set in ni- 1960s, all, all the characters, they, they went back and forth between the, the, the the chief cities in, in this part of the world. Uh, and that's something that's, that's been really long-standing. Look at the 19th century. Hong Kong was such big, grew into such a successful trading port because of, of the, um, the role it, it played linking up mainland China with uh, Southeast Asia and, and the rest of the world. Uh, and that, that's, that's just about trade and uh, movements of people. But there's many other dimensions to that part of Hong Kong history as well. If you look at pop culture, for instance, uh, Hong Kong pop music, uh, the, sing- the singers are mostly local mm-hmm. people, but the, the guitarists, the, the um, musicians who, who back up the singers, many of them are, are Filipinos. They came to Hong Kong after the 50s. Uh, some of them came not actually from Philippines, but they were already big musicians in, in Shanghai in, in the 30s. So... Um, there, there's always been fascinating movements of people uh, in all directions in this part of the world. And by this part of the world, I'm not, not talking about just China or East Asia, but, but Southeast Asia and, and, and more widely. So but that dimension uh, is completely absent in the current Hong Kong story exhibition. That, that should really 
be, be that it, it, it should really play a part in a new version. Mm. There, there are a lot of good ideas here, but it's not a very large museum, is it? Right? I mean, you're, you're, <laughs> it's you, a big got, space. It's it's well, much but you, than, you think than of one the, the number of ideas you, you've been raising this morning, you're not going to be able to fit them all in. Well, well, like it, it like you say, there are there's going to be uh, a space for uh, like thematic exhibitions that that can change maybe every four, four we, to six months. We, we do through. not have to make it very large. We just have to have these thematics that that are relevant. For example, I think that's a very good point. Like. You need to look at the uh, the whole political situation for the last, say, 150 years, and that has to do with the British uh, Empire, as I mentioned earlier, and also uh, the the interaction of, with the rest of Asia. That that actually, arguably, is far more important than China itself, because these people come and go. Why do they come and go? The Russians, for example, we have the Bolshevik Revolution. They fled Russia, they went to Shanghai, and then we had another revolution, and they came to Hong Kong. Uh, the Cherikov, you know, the, uh, the, the trainers in the Happy Valley, uh, in the Jockey Club, a, a huge, I mean, not a significant uh, Russian community in Hong Kong. For some reasons, they would never go back to Russia. So these this cultures, the Filipinos, the Russians, the Portuguese, everything, that, that has a, that, there's a reason behind it, right? So Hong Kong was like a sanctuary, for everyone, right? even though we're small. So that's why we're cosmopolitan and multicultural. And picking up on that, I'd say that size in this case, I would argue, doesn't matter. I don't think we should fall into the trap that has, I, I would hazard to say, like across many developing nations around the world of trying to build big, huge museums to try to compete with some of the big, huge museums around the world. Small museums can do incredible work. Um, and, you know, if, if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's taught us that, you know, closed indoor spaces have some potential problems going forward. And I would encourage, I mean, I'm sure they are considering these issues, but um, a small museum in Hong Kong might be able to actually do incredible programming out in the city. It doesn't all have to be confined by the walls of the museum. And, you know, all of that actually echoes what we're talking about here about openness, fluidity, movement. I think these are really important things to take seriously in terms of how the programs could unfold. I think a danger would be to fall into the traditional museum uh, process of trying to put things in glass cases that can just be statically viewed. That will happen. That's core to like what museums are about. We have collections. We take care of them. But around the world, everyone is asking museums to pro provide these extra services to create spaces where people come in and speak with each other, meet one another, move through. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that the size isn't so much of an issue. And I pick up one other point. Um, all of this, for me, really echoes this real this reality that I, I don't hear talked about too much in Hong Kong is that we have incredible place identity mm. in this city. We have incredible soft power, to use a term that's very sort of potent in this part of the mm. world. And across the border to the north, that is something that government officials are very interested in. And I'll be honest, I'm somewhat surprised that there hasn't been as skillful a leveraging of the soft power of these identities of Hong Kong as an open place where the world comes in. It seems like that could fit into a narrative of what China could do in the world. But for some reason, I mean, we can probably postulate on that, but like that doesn't conform to what people want. But that, that I think the Museum of Hong Kong, if I can propose a different name for today, okay, I like it. would be to, to take that seriously. We are an open place where people come in from all over the world. Everyone is welcome. Um, you know, the, the civic presence here is phenomenal. I'll speak this as someone who's more recently arrived. The idea that I could arrive here and in seven years be a permanent part of your place, there are very few places in the world where that's possible. That's incredible. It's a beautiful thing that you invite anyone from the world to participate, be civically present, and then commit to this community. And I think the museum could embrace that as sort of a fundamental ethos. 
In, on, in, on. Yeah, in fact, the, the soft power of Hong Kong was used much more effectively during the colonial period than it is today, especially in the 70s and the 80s when the government and the tourist authorities, for example, were really trying to sell Hong Kong as a place. Uh, it is, of course, much more complicated of an issue today. Um, but I do have one other point about space. Um, given that the, uh, the overwhelming responses to the survey were to move the natural history section, I think that would leave plenty of, of space for Hong Kong's colonial and post-colonial history. Well, you're talking about space, and especially as uh, you referenced just now to how indoor space is, is, is not such a great idea in the mm. environment. How about Ocean Park? There's plenty of space there, and uh, there may be, may be a lot of vacant space in Ocean Park <laughs> in, <laughs> in the next year or so. I mean, is there a potential, and that already uh, focuses on Hong Kong heritage, is, is there potential for using that kind of uh, space? It could be. I guess the question is, what do you want to achieve? Do you want to do something like you have in the American state of Virginia, uh, Colonial Williamsburg, which is uh, sort of like, a, some people would say, the Disneyfication of, uh, of America's colonial history. Uh, what, we're going to have a, uh, a preserved Hong Kong village, a preserved Hong Kong Aberdeen village, for example. Hard to tell. Okay, I mean, there used to be something like that at the Ocean Park years and years ago, and they shut it down in favor of fun rides. Is it time to, to turn the wheel back full circle? I would say Ocean Park is full of opportunities in terms of uh, revamping. <laughs> well, one thing that just strikes me as also kind of interesting about Hong Kong and uh, perhaps special about Hong Kong, uh, and perhaps not, is the, is the way that um, uh, young people's interest uh, in history. Uh, I'm thinking that the, um, uh, a lot of the uh, localism, sort of, uh, and, which is a sort of significant current in today's Hong Kong, uh, you can date back to the Queen's Pier and to the um, the wow. efforts by young people and students to protect that and, mm. and to protect Star Ferry as well, which I think caught a lot of people by by surprise. And you've got a strange kind of situation where the young people seem to be more invested in Hong Kong and Hong Kong identity than the than the older people. That's a weird kind of turn, isn't it? Well, it isn't. It isn't. I mean, if I may speak to that, yeah. um, uh, I have to reference a colleague of mine, Oscar Ho, who did a lot of work around these issues. Um, but I, I think you are right to see this sort of question that's presented there. But I think beneath that, there's a reality, another part of Hong Kong, it's dynamics, it's ch way it changes, it changes very quickly. And it can be hard for people to feel like they have a solid place. Like, I think we have history should be a place for open and contestation, but also a place where people can feel stable, right? That they have a place, an opportunity to speak um, from a certain position. And the, 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 that moment was what I would argue for, uh, for, if I can speak on behalf of my students, a moment where they were questioning the logic of just fundamental development. And that this was a moment where the people of Hong Kong said, our civic heritage, our place identity, deserves a moment to be considered. We want this to be our place. And so it happened to be the case that it then aligned with what was an, a form of cultural heritage that might align with colonial history or any other narratives. I think the prioritization was we want to state that we have a stake in how the space of Hong Kong shifts and changes and what is kept and what is allowed to change. I, I, I at least see it much more as a fundamental assertion of the next generation's sort of demo democratic intentions. Yeah, I think it also explains, for example, why suddenly so many Hong Kong people are so interested in the Battle of Hong Kong in December 1941, right? Because this is their battle. You can talk about the Nanjing Massacre, you can talk about other events in, uh, in mainland China during the war, but this, this is our history. Mm. A couple of comments from, from listeners. 
uh, Guy, this is from Guy, who says, History always ignores the ancient Chinese road, bridge and way marker network radiating from the Kowloon Walled City up to the centre, east and west of Kowloon and the New Territories. Hong Kong's boulder trackways, stone bridges and stone way markers are still to be found in North Kowloon and the New Territories and as Hong Kong's oldest built heritage should be accorded monument status. Search Hong Kong boulder trackways on Google and Facebook uh, for more. That's uh, from Guy, Hong Kong boulder trackways. Uh, Alan says the museum will be about as educational as the Creation Museum in Kentucky with Adam and Eve <laughs> and their pet dinosaurs. It will demonise the evil imperialist Guaylo drug dealers. Nothing good done by the British. Uh, will the Commonwealth troops who fought and died to defend Hong Kong be mentioned at all? I doubt it. Ignoring the contributions of all non-Chinese ethnic groups, Persians, Indians, Jewish, Scottish, ignore the fact that the ancient inhabitants of Hong Kong were not Han and were replaced by waves of invaders several times. Lionising the heroic CCP, ignoring the murderous CCP terrorism during 1967, calling any democratic protesters rioters, traitors, anything maritime will be to support the nine-dash line. That is uh, from Alan with uh, his predictions. And Rick just says, a really interesting show today. Thanks, guys. That's uh, from Rick. Uh, back to You just saw an example of the suspicion, John Carroll, the suspicions of uh, what the, the new exhibition will be. You, you said that you know people on the advisory committee. Are, are they aware that everything in, everything they're doing is going to be under really under a microscope and uh, really forensically a- analysed for any any signs of political bias? This will be one of the most scrutinised revamps in museum history, I think. Right, and they're, they're pretty much inevitable if they're going to be dealing with controversial topics that, that yeah. whatever they do, they're, get, they're, they're going to be criticised. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's important to, to remind everyone, as many of our guests have, that museums are never neutral. They always operate under constraints, whether they're political, whether they're spatial, whether they're financial, whether they're temporal. There's always some kind of constraint. And I have to say I do... Uh, I am certain that uh, some of my colleagues who are on this, this committee will do the best they can. And these are trying times. Okay, just a couple of comments on Facebook. Uh, John, I think this, is, this would be addressed to uh, Ian Alden Russell, perhaps. Uh, John says, because museum exhibits are sensitive to deterioration and damage by UV radiation, mm-hmm. sunlight, therefore museums are designed to avoid windows and glazing. Physically locating museums without windows in locations without stunning views over the har- with stunning views over the harbour is bizarre. Mm. That's uh, from uh, John. And TC says, here's an interesting angle on narratives of museums. Do you think that Holocaust museums in Poland, Israel or any country has a narrative or offers neutral viewpoints? That's from TC. Anyone want to respond? If I could just uh, yeah. make, make a quick comment. Uh, if you go on Instagram, there's a popular hashtag. Museums are not neutral. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are T-shirts branded with that hashtag mm-hmm. to raise money for that campaign. Yeah. Yeah. Mu- museums, they, they're all never neutral. They, and they shouldn't be probably. But th- museums are not the be-all and end-all in, in a free society where there's free information. People go to a museum... They, they take in some information, they may disagree with it. They, and ideally, they should come out of it with more questions and then they go off and, and find answers themselves. Actually, the current Hong Kong story has been avoiding some controversial issues, such as the 1967 riots, the 1956 riots, and also the seamen strike in the 1920s. So I guess the new Hong Kong story would have a more serious challenge. Right. It, also, it also avoids serious discussion of the protests after the Tiananmen massacre. Mm. It discusses the big protests before the massacre, but not the one afterwards. 
So if your existing uh, exhibition is avoiding uh, contra- or controversial events in the 1920s, what hope is it it could really deal with controversial events that took place last year? Well, I mean, I would just say that if you look, flip the script on this and you look at Hong Kong's media saturation in 2019, it dominated global conversations. And putting everything aside, if we're talking like st- from a strategy perspective right now, that worked to a lot of people's advantage. Lots of people, protesters, central government, all sorts of positions. Because if you saturate the media, you are what people are thinking about. And there is value to it. There's soft power value to that, even if it's a problematic narrative. Yeah, sure. So I would say that that there will be an embracement, there should be an embracement of the difficulties and the contestation, and that if it's skillfully managed, it actually can, even if there is a lot of criticism, it would actually be an incredible marketing campaign to bring visitors into the museum. Some museums even start with a discussion of the controversies that Mm. were involved. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the, 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 I've got to say, the Visual Art Museum, um, that's very interesting, and that has different perspectives right. and different kind of approaches and encourages uh, different tacks and uh, different ways to think about it. Perhaps uh, if you're a museum of visual arts, you're not so much on the front line in terms of politicisation as if you're a museum of history. <laughs> it's now, art's uh, very political. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. If you yeah, want to talk yeah. about the Philip Gaston exhibition, we can <laughs> speak about the front lines. Another day. Yeah. Okay, for the meantime, thank you very much indeed for, for joining us today. Professor John Carroll from the Department of History and Associate Dean of the Faculty of Arts at the University of Hong Kong, Haley Kickerboy, co-founder of Walk in Hong Kong and a history writer, Ian Alden Russell, associate professor in cultural studies and director of the MA programme in cultural management at the Chinese University, Raynal Jung, uh, a, uh, now studying at uh, Oxford, who is PhD, a historian, uh, an expert in the history of museums in Hong Kong, and Gordon Poon, historian and writer. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us, Danny. Thank you very much indeed. Here's the weather before we go. Mainly fine, dry, maximum temperature about 30 degrees, 27 degrees, the latest readings, the relative humidity is at 69%. Under the Kindergarten Education Scheme, the registration certificate for kindergarten admission is used as a registration document. Parents of children born on or before December 31st, 2018, who will attend K1 in the 2021-22 school year, are required to submit applications from September to November. Application forms are available at district offices, post offices and the Education Bureau. For details, please call 28910088 or visit the Education Bureau website at www.edb.gov.hk. It's half past nine. The news now with Samantha Butler. An aviation analyst says a travel bubble planned for Singapore and Hong Kong would be a significant step towards boosting their airline and tourism industries. Brendan Sobey, who's based in Singapore, says before the coronavirus, there were some 20 flights a day between the two cities, with local passengers making up 70% of the traffic. He says both airports have since seen passenger traffic drop more than 98%. A Chinese coronavirus vaccine has been found to be safe and to trigger immune responses in combined early and mid-stage trials. But the researchers have said it's not possible to say whether the antibody responses induced by the vaccine are sufficient to protect from infection because the trial wasn't designed to assess its efficacy. And Donald Trump and Joe Biden have been holding campaign events, taking questions from the public in Miami and Philadelphia, respectively. Simultaneous town halls take the place of the second presidential debate. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, great interpreter of Beethoven. As well, oh so shy, quiet, and retiring doggy council co founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for adults, not really for cats. Good morning. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Decipher what's happening behind the lift. Good morning. In depth interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. 
on your radio and live online. This is The Morning Brew. Good morning to you and welcome to Friday. Here on The Morning Brew, it's World Food Day as well. So who better to celebrate that with us this Friday than Chef Neil Tomes, hey? Live from his lab at 1010, he's going to tell you all about smoking today. The meat kind, not the nasty, filthy one that can do you in kind. Unless, of course, you've actually tried his pastrami. We'll be on Facebook Live. And as always, any questions about food, do chip in. 11.10, our crack sport journo Danny Hicks returns with this week's edition of Sports and All. I believe it's football heavy today. And finally, 12.10, we're going to end the week as usual with a visit to the movies, courtesy of our tame critic James Marsh. Misbehaviour, Ava, 49 Days, and The Haunting of Bly Manor. That's him for a Friday. There's no need to explain. I know.